how can we increase the chances that our audience will truly get what we mean? With clarity. I'm Daphna. Welcome to Let's Clarify It, where we'll explore how to communicate our innovative ideas in ways that lead to the results and impact we set out to achieve. Every day we encounter so many opportunities for meaningful exchanges. Let's make the most of them by being perfectly clear. What is the price of misunderstandings between two people in a professional collaboration, which are rooted in very different cultures? It's certainly all too high if you ask intercultural expert Osnat Lautman, author of Amazon bestseller, Israeli Business Culture. Going from pro-organizational consultant in Israel to being misunderstood during a relocation by U.S. colleagues, neighbors, and teachers was a profound learning experience, which sparked Osnat's intercultural career. She developed the Israeli model of Israeli business characteristics, Israeli being an acronym I, informal, S, straightforward, R, risk-taking, A, ambitious, E, entrepreneurial, L, loud, I, improvisational, to reveal the foundations of the Israeli innovative culture and provide a bridge of understanding across which Israelis and their colleagues and associates can reach more mutually trusting and fruitful relationships. Listen to episode 19 of Let's Clarify It, in which Osnat shares how clarity is a combination of words, body language, and tone of voice, What happens when someone says, I don't care, when they actually mean, I have no strong preference between these two options? And why asking someone, what's your opinion, versus asking, what would you do if you were me, can yield two very different responses. Curious? Let's clarify it. Good morning, Osnat. How are you? Hi, Dasna. All is good. Thank you. And you? Thanks very well. I'm super happy to host you here on Let's Clarify It. I wish we were meeting in person, but actually in Israel, pretty much we could be meeting in person at this point, right? In May, things are opening up. It's looking optimistic, wouldn't you say? Much better, much better these days. Very hopeful. So for the benefit of our listeners who don't yet know about your very interesting work, you have a pretty unique field, don't you? Could you tell people who is your audience and what is your message to that audience? So first of all, my audience actually divided into two, Israelis and non-Israelis. And I teach both how to bridge their cultural gaps while working with others. And regarding the message, well, the message is almost identical, both for Israelis and non-Israelis. And it is that the whole is greater than the sum of its part when you communicate with empathy and when you know how to build trust. So if you have a global mindset, you will know how to use the advantage from each culture and to make the best of it. Cool. So in that analogy, what is the whole? What is the whole? That the, is whole is the, the whole is the diverse group, meaning if we have people from China and from different places in Europe and Israelis and each one of the culture has their own advantages, we will know how to take the best of each and to work with synergy. That's the idea. So the whole in that 
analogy is the entire global business community exactly. and all of, all of us. All of us. Beautiful. Okay. So you actually have some very interesting challenges trying to help people from one culture communicate with people from cultures that are very different from their own. Maybe mm -hmm. on a personal note, can you think of a time that you were misunderstood and maybe that helped you understand the importance of communicating between cultures with clarity? So it's interesting because I keep on learning all the time. So it's not really to be misunderstood, if I can say, but it's more of the ability or the challenge to translate not only the language, but also the culture. So let me explain myself. So it was before COVID and it was in San Francisco. I was invited to provide a lecture over there. And one of the participants actually came to me before the lecture and he came with my book and he said, would you mind signing the book? And I looked at the book and unfortunately he got the old version, the first edition of the book. So I said, oh, I'm sorry that you got the old version and no worries, I will give you as a present the second edition. And then I asked him, what do you think? Do you think that it would be better for me to remove the first edition from Amazon, that people will not buy the first edition? So he looked at me and he said, well, I'm not sure. And then I looked at him again and I said, okay, but if you were me, what would you do? So then he said, well, if I were you, I will definitely remove the book from Amazon. So I was a bit misunderstood because I was approaching him while asking kind of a personal question. But when I rephrased the question, it was much more easier for him to be honest with me and said, well, definitely remove the book. As I said that, I keep on learning. So it's more than a decade that actually I researched this field of cross-cultural communication. And I keep on learning all the time how the small details are actually so important across cultures. But do you think that in that interesting instance that you just shared with us, that the reason that this person sort of misunderstood what you were saying the first time you asked, should I remove my first edition? Do you think that that's because this person had a cultural implicit assumption that associating what somebody is saying with one's personal experience is not automatically what somebody goes to unless they're being asked for what would they do personally? I think that he wasn't feeling comfortable to give me an honest answer regarding what he would do because well, he thought it's a mistake, but we just met and I'm the lecturer, right? So it will be kind of, in his perspective, not so nice to be, well, you made a mistake. But when I ask him, well, if you were me, that's different rephrase of the question. And that gave him the opportunity to be honest with me without offending. Right. Osnat, how did you even get into this field? Was there a moment in a previous career direction that you were involved in that helped you understand, wait a minute, there's something interesting going on here with regard to culture, and I want to mm -hmm. dig deeper into that and develop it? So I have been working as an organizational consultant since 2007. And just um, a few years later, my husband got a job offer and we flew to live in the United States in Hoboken. And we lived there for four years, my husband, myself, our children, and I worked in a global company, an American one, and I also studied in NYU. But living over there with all the beauty, by the way, of Hoboken, a beautiful place next to Manhattan with a view to the city. But with all this beauty, actually, it was kind of difficult for me to communicate with people. I was all the time misunderstood by local people. 
neighbors, teachers, colleagues at work. So it was very weird for me. How come in one culture, back in Israel, I used to teach people how to stand in front of an audience, how to sell, how to give service. So how come in one culture I teach other people? And then when I arrive to the States, they actually don't really appreciate the way I work or communicate. So then I realized that the gap is actually much bigger than I thought. And all that was a decade ago. And then that was the moment when I decided to explore more of this topic of cross-cultural communication. And I have been interviewing hundreds of people since then. And I asked them to share their experience working with Israelis. And by the way, from those hundreds of interviews, I built my own acronym of who are we as Israelis. And you asked me about delivering the message. That was very clear to me that using the Israeli word as an acronym will provide me and my audience a better clarity of who we are. I use the word Israeli, as I said, as an acronym in a way that each letter is the beginning of one of the main Israeli characteristics. So we have Israeli, right? So we have I, informal, S, straightforward. R, risk-taking, A, ambitious, E, entrepreneurial, L, loud, and the last I is improvisational. So that was a clear message of who we are. And people that want to work with us need to actually adjust their culture. And also, if we want to work with others, we need to be aware of how people see us and then adjust ourselves to others. And do you find that these types of, I guess, largely a generalization, do they apply widely? I mean, even within mm. a culture, especially in such a melting pot like Israel, like the United States, exactly. like countries that include a ton of immigration ongoing, right? From multiple, multiple countries, one generation ago, two generations ago, is there even such a thing as a uniform character of an Israeli business person? Very good question, because it's true. I do use a lot of generalizations. So it's not true that all of us are the same. But in my belief, it's much better to build a pattern and then understand, well, that's the majority of the people. But if you want to understand us, you will know that each one of us is individual and unique, right? And by the way, you need to be locally in order to understand the, the small nuance of differences. Right. So for us going to Africa and understanding the differences over there, it will be extremely difficult. Or to come to Israel and say, well, there are differences. Let's say I live in Tel Aviv and you live in Jerusalem. Right. There are a lot of differences from people who live in Tel Aviv than people that live in Jerusalem. But you need to be local in order to understand the differences. So it's much better to speak to people that are non-Israelis, to speak to us as a whole and then understand the small nuance and the differences. Okay, so do you wanna give us maybe a quick example of one implication of each one of those characteristics, both so that non-Israelis, when approaching an Israeli, what does it actually mean when you take into consideration that the first I of your acronym is informal, what right. could a non-Israeli, what could a person from any other country understand? What would be the implication of that informality when trying to engage in a business interaction with an Israeli? What does that imply? Okay, so let's say I, as we said, it's informal, right? So we always look at the spectrum between using informality or being formal. 
and it's called power distance, meaning hierarchy. How much respect you give to someone that is older than you? How much respect you give to someone that is senior than you at work? Can you tell your manager in front of other people that he's wrong? Or it's better to do it on one-on-one, okay? Then if we look on S, the second characteristics, straightforward. So the spectrum will run from using a direct style of speech to an indirect style of speech. So we Israelis, we are very direct, but there are many other countries that will be indirect in a way that let's say in Japan or in China, if you disagree with your manager, there's going to be no answer. Silence is going to be the only answer that you can give to someone that is senior than you at work. And what Israelis need to understand about that directness and that straightforwardness is that people outside of Israel could misinterpret their directness as being rude or impolite? Absolutely. And also looking at it from the other end, meaning let's say someone from England will come to you and will say, well, I was a bit disappointed from something you've said or done. What does it mean, a bit disappointed? Meaning that British people will do a bit of a downgrade to the real feeling, meaning that they're very upset of what happened. But what you will hear will be a bit disappointed. And the translation will be, well, it's not, it's not a big deal. When actually that Israeli should understand that they've got a mini crisis on their hands because this British associate of theirs is very unhappy with what just happened. Right. And looking at it from the other perspective, if an Israeli will come to someone from Europe and tell him, I totally disagree with you, they need to understand that the Israeli actually upgrade their message. We are not clear with everything and we need some corrections here and there. Not a big deal. We need to look for the balance here and to translate, as I said, not only the language, but also the culture. The nuance. Yeah. What does risk taking imply, for example? Risk-taking is actually, I will use the three characteristics as one unit. So it's risk-taking, ambitious, and entrepreneurial, three of them as a unit, because the way I see it is an entrepreneur will do almost everything in order to reach his or her specific goal with a lot of risk-taking and ambitions. In this chapter, actually in the book or in my workshops, I speak a lot about innovation and Israel as a startup nation and, and, and all that. And without a culture in which you're allowed to take risks, right? If you're penalized for trying something that isn't already tried and true, how can you create innovation, right? And understand that during the way you you can lose some and win some, and it's fine, it's okay to fail during the way and to gain experience and all that. It's part of the Israeli culture, of course. Totally. I guess I cringed a little bit when you said loud for L for the acronym, right? Because somehow that's rarely perceived as a positive quality. What do you mean by loud and how can Israelis kind of temper down the fact that that might be one of our least loved qualities in the world as far as an image? Because that definitely sounds judgmentally like a negative rather than a neutral term, no? I must say that All the characteristics, none of them is either advantage or disadvantage. It's actually to know what to use in a certain situation. But if we speak about the characteristics loud, so it's not only about being loud in your voice, but actually also the intense life that we have in Israel. But if I I can give you an example, let's say in a meeting, everybody needs to say something. There, There is a need to be heard in Israel. 
And I remember that in one of the interviews that I've done, an American business people told me that it's fine in the American culture not to be heard all the time. You don't have to say something. And people all the time interrupt in the middle of the sentence and don't give you the opportunity actually to say what you want. And the conversation go to different directions, actually. And, you know, God gave us two ears and one mouth that we will hear more and speak less. So that's something that I think that Israelis need to remember. But also non-Israelis that communicate with Israelis, they need to understand that this style of loudness in the communication shows a lot of enthusiasm. And also it's a challenge. People disagree between one another, and it's, it's also an opportunity. And the positive side that you see to this loudness is the assertiveness, is speaking up and advocating on behalf of yourself. Right, right. and challenge your colleagues, the people that are around you, and to get to much better results. And then finally, in your acronym, the final I is improvisational. Right. We spoke about Chinese, British people. Let's speak about, let's say, if we compare it to German people, okay, or people from Austria. So let's say in Germany, you have a good idea, and then a long process, and then execution. In Israel, we normally have a good idea, and we write on it, go to the execution with less of a process orientation and looking into the small details. And we allow ourselves to improvise along the way. And that's something also, it is a challenge when we work with other people. But more rapid iterations that enable innovation to kind of cycle more quickly. We try something. If it doesn't work, we get feedback. Exactly. We try something else. Mm-hmm. And people will see it as being in professional in a way, but we don't see it as way, but just looking for the best result. And it's fine to kind of reorganize the plan at any moment. Very interesting. Okay. And if people want a lot more examples of each one of these acronyms and about your entire methodology, they can come to your workshop so they can read your book. Fantastic. So tell me, when was a time that you felt like clarity served you really well? Okay. As I said, I think that clarity is one of the most important things for interpersonal communication, for cross-cultural communication, and of course, for people who stand in front of an audience. And you know, Albert Einstein once said that if you can't explain the message simply, you don't understand it well enough. So back to your question, clarity serves me well all the time. However, I must admit that the language barrier and the Israeli accent is always a challenge for me. Even if communicating in English is something that I do on my daily basis, in general, I think that people have much more confidence of them being clear with their message when they use their mother tongue, of course. Let me share with you a simple example. I remember that years ago, I went to a small convenience store in New Jersey, back in Hoboken, and I asked for milk. And the seller looked at me in kind of a vague facial expression and asked me, what are you looking for? And I remember that for a second or half of a second, I wasn't sure if milk is the right word. And also if I was clear with the way I pronounce it. And in years later, I thought to myself that such a reaction, even if it, it was just for a second, will never happen to me in my own mother tongue. You know, like in Hebrew, I will respond to the seller in much more self-confidence saying, what do you mean what I'm looking for? I'm looking for milk or halav in Hebrew. So for me, being clear is the combination of three things. The words that I'm using, 
the body language and also the tone of voice. Albert Merabian was the first researcher who spoke about the 73855 rule. And the rule states that only 7% of the meaning is communicated through the spoken word, meaning in my story, the milk, right? So I was left with the 38% for the meaning of the voice, of the tone of voice, and 55% through body language. So can you imagine how much the lack of confidence impact this style of communication? So when you communicate across culture using English as a second language, language, there is a huge impact to the less of confidence that we have in this style of communication without using our mother tongue. But what do you think that that vendor in the store in New Jersey actually misunderstood? What could be misunderstood about a word like milk? Exactly. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he couldn't hear me well, but I took it on my own responsibility because it wasn't my mother tongue. And I thought maybe I was mistaken with the word. Maybe it's my accent, but it will so never happen it shook to me. Your, it shook your exactly. confidence so much because you were speaking in a second language. And so easily with such a simple word that it's easy even for me to pronounce. We have much more complicated word, like the hierarchical word that I tried to say earlier or different words that we're using on a daily basis, but milk. So if it happened to me in milk, what will happen in much more challenging words, situation, hire manager, not a seller in a convenience store or standing in front of a huge audience. So what's the antidote? Is the solution that when we're speaking in a language that's not our first language, it's a matter of time and building up our confidence in that language and acquiring the specific terminology. When I work with Israeli startups, for example, and they're very self-conscious about speaking in English in front of investors, they're very concerned. Are they going to understand me the way I intended? And I help them see that if they're very clear in terms of their message, If they choose the words that are the precise words that they intend in order to convey what's the value of their offering, then even if their accent is a very strong Israeli accent, or even if they messed up something with how to conjugate the verb, Mm -hmm. something about the syntax or the grammar, even if that isn't perfect, and even if they still come across as somebody that it's their second language, if the terminology, if the big picture message is crystal clear, I think that in most cases, their audience will understand them. Wouldn't you say? True, but but Daphne, thanks God for you, English is your mother tongue and you feel easy to communicate with me in English. But right now for me, it's still a challenge, as I said, even if I do it on a daily basis. And what I was trying to say is keep it simple, first of all, use the word that you feel comfortable to use. And more than that, remember the impact of the body language and the tone of voice, meaning that people will judge you not only but what you're saying, but also how you communicate. So the body, less gestures, be confident in what you're saying. Remember that you know what you do, that you have done it many times. So keep on practicing. And yes, I remember myself a decade ago providing a lecture in New York. Yes, I was afraid at the beginning. And I couldn't allow jokes. The lecture was A bit shorter than I thought because I didn't go to different directions. I was ready with my own content and that's it. But that's the beginning. And step by step, you will be much better. And this podcast is recorded. It's not going to be perfect. My English is not going to be perfect. Maybe one day. But after a decade, 
that's where I got to and I'm happy with it. And I keep on remembering myself that I'm not an English expert. I'm a cross-cultural communication expert. I'm still, I'm an Israeli. And I think it's important that we're speaking about it. Super. For other people that hearing us and have this challenge of using English as a second language. And it's really a challenge that I keep on hearing from other people. I totally agree that the verbal and the nonverbal are what can play a really significant part here. Do you have specific role models that come to mind when you think of, wow, there's somebody who is a communicator of great clarity? Hmm. Well, I have few, but I want to speak about Barack Obama, the 44th president of the United States. And I will tell you why. So you probably remember Barack Obama, Yes, We Can victory speech. I think it was in Chicago in 2008. It was such a nice speech. The words, the tone of voice, the gestures, the look on his face. Uh, you know, everything was accurate to his audience. But for me, Barack Obama is a communicator of great clarity, not thanks to his victory speech, but mainly because I saw him, you know, saw him. I saw him via YouTube, of course. A few months before he was elected trying to speak in front of an audience without practicing. And then his teleprompter was not working and it was just a very bad performance. First of all, you're welcome to Google that video on YouTube under the name Obama Lost Without a Teleprompter and be amazed with the way people can improve their message from mumbling to such a speech full of confidence and clarity such as the Yes, We Can speech. So if you ask me, Barack Obama got his trophy for being a communicator of great clarity, thanks to his improvement. Homework works, right? Yeah. It's very, very Absolutely. important. Absolutely. A very homework. good example. I was shocked at the beginning when I saw him on YouTube, but yes. That's actually encouraging to people who are less experienced at public speaking because it demonstrates that it's a learnable, acquirable skill. Even Barack Obama, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Now, I like to work a lot with the issue of how to take a complex message, since I work with scientists so often, how to take a complex message and break it down such that it can be very accessible to an audience, a very intelligent audience, but an audience whose disciplinary background is very different from that of the speaker. Can you think of a time that you had to explain something very complicated to an audience? Hmm. I must admit that for me, it's not something complicated. It's about translating a culture. So let me share with you a story that wasn't long ago. So we went to the Alcon Park in Tel Aviv with some cousins, a few from Israel and others are visiting from the States. And we had a light lunch over there. And one of my Israeli cousins said to the American one, you must try this eggplant dish. And he said, thanks, but I don't really like eggplants. But my cousin, the Israeli one, keep on insisting, saying, well, you must try it. It's very good. You must try it. It's not so complicated to explain, but I'm happy that I was there to explain to my American cousin that it is not really a must. He must do the eggplant. It's just an Israeli term that we use to show enthusiasm. Well, it's just a good dish. It was a what? strong recommendation. It wasn't giving orders. Exactly. It's not complicated, but it's something that was misunderstood at a specific moment. 
Totally. Now, you started off our conversation with an analogy when you spoke about the whole and its parts. I love using analogies and metaphors. I find that they're a very helpful tool for explaining from one field to an audience that's not familiar with that field, harnessing the power of what is it like? What is it similar to? Do you tend to use that a lot in your cultural and intercultural examples? Do you take from one field that this audience with its cultural specific pool of references is familiar with in order to learn what they might not yet be familiar with from a new culture? Yes, I do. So there is an analogy that I enjoy using. It's called the banana story. But before I'm going to share with you the story, let me share with you the behind the scenes. Have you heard about the website Quora? Quora, where you ask questions and... and, Yeah, exactly. And the community will answer. So back in 2012, somebody from the Silicon Valley asked a question and he was saying, well, I work with two or three Israelis why it is so hard working with them. <laughs> and, and, you know, more than 300 people replied to this question <laughs> with great analogies and, and, you know, answers, whatever. And I enjoy reading all of them. But one of them was an amazing one. Um, so that's the analogy that I'm actually using. It was written by Owen Shamil. An Israeli that works in a high-tech company, his mom, she is from Brooklyn. And you know, Israel is a small country. So I reached out to him, I called him, we spoke about it, and I told him that it's an amazing story. So after all that, let me share with you the story. Hopefully you're going to like it. It's a kind of a long story, so I will share with you the shortened version. An executive in a big global company that makes home appliance calls his two team leaders, one in Israel and another in the U.S., and tell them that they need to build a machine that bends bananas backwards to make them straight, okay? The American team leaders say they will get right on it, and the next morning he posts a job opening on LinkedIn looking for a banana expert, and after a few months they have a new machine that produces perfect straight bananas. However, it costs them about $300. And then the executive called the Israeli team leader, and he, the Israeli just listened to him for about three minutes and then interrupts to say that this is a really stupid idea. But on his way home, the Israeli team leaders think that his manager, what he's asking to do, and he still thinks it's a stupid idea, but he sees it as a challenge. So the next morning, he called a couple of friends from the kibbutz, and within a week, they have a machine that costs only $13. However, only 60% of the cases are straight bananas and the rest of the bananas don't look as good anymore. For me, it's a funny story. It's a funny analogy and I love it because it's not only about the bananas, of course, but about setting expectations and about different approaches from different people who comes from different cultures and what's the right way to use their advantages because none of the results were perfect, right? One costs too much and the other is not providing 100% results. But together with the right approach, they can get much more of it. And actually, it's, it's brings me back to the first question that you asked me about, what is my message? So the whole can be greater than the sum of its part if we understand the advantages and the different approaches. That's a lot of fun. And thanks for that story. And I almost expected that the punchline was going to be something like, And a week later, they came back and they had straight bananas that they added a zipper to them because they won up the job description and decided that they were going to find a better way of peeling them or something. The longer version goes that the Israelis say that actually in Israel, there is no need to straight the bananas because first we peel them. 
Exactly. <laughs> so, so that's the longer version. You can you yes, can Google it and find it as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you for that. So obviously, clarity is very, very important in your field of intercultural communication. How would you right. highlight the importance of clarity when communicating with somebody from a different culture? Clarity in my field is almost everything. People actually can lose even their job because they weren't clear enough with what they tried to say. And I even remember a situation that happened in a company that I'm working with for a while that an employee was misunderstood. Unfortunately, he's no longer part of the company. So I can share with you the story. It was in a meeting when the Canadian CEO asked the Israeli VP to choose between two potential products. And the Israeli VP reply was, I don't care. When actually he wanted to say, I don't mind. And he just used the wrong term, wrong translation in a way, saying, I, I don't care. So yes, if you ask me, clarity is extremely important across cultures. You can even lose your job. Wow, ouch. So you're saying that maybe the lack of understanding, of intercultural understanding on the part of the Canadian CEO that I don't care was actually a poor translation on the part of the Israeli that he meant to say, I'm indifferent. You know, I don't have a strong preference between the two options, but that somebody would be willing to lose a good employee on the basis of thinking that the person was being rude when actually they weren't being rude. They were just expressing their indifference between two options. Actually, right. Actually, it wasn't the first situation that he was misunderstood. So it goes both ways from the Israeli to understand that I'm being misunderstood and and to keep on saying something, you know, looking in the small details, why I don't care, even if it's not the right term. And from the Canadian manager to make sure that he understands what he's saying. So it's not like everything is so obvious and, and clear to everyone across cultures. So you need to ask more questions, make sure we are all understanding one another. And kind of become aware of the assumptions, the implicit assumptions that each of us is making. True, as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Totally. Interesting. Can you think of a particularly large communication challenge that you have overcome in your work? So I think that even if I am an expert in the field of cross-cultural communication, still bridging the cultural gaps on my daily basis is always a challenge for me. And for my customers. So I already overcome many cross-cultural challenges. And I know that many more will come. And by the way, I'm happy for that. This is why I have so much passion to this field. And it is not like math when one plus one equals two across cultures. You deal with different individuals that are not the same. So we always have the need to use our emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence to bridge the cultural gaps and to make the best of any situation. For sure. Tell me us not after we've had a year in which we didn't really get to choose how we can communicate because almost all of us had to suffice with remote communication. What's your favorite COVID notwithstanding? If you can choose any type of communication, what's your first choice? Well, actually, I'm not thinking about either if it's via Zoom or face-to-face. What I'm thinking about is that my favorite kind of communication is the one that goes without saying. When you share the deepest layers of communication, the ones that can be found below the surface, share common values and beliefs with the person you communicate with. So when there is no need to say much, just to smile and to know that clarity in this case goes without saying. 
because I trust you, because I know you, you know, easygoing. And that sounds like the kind of deep communication that you can only right. have after you've already built rapport with somebody. That's not a first date. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yep. So the people that you already have some significant mileage with and you've already built an infrastructure of understanding no, with. But it's also happened with people that you feel that you have it from a specific moment. Like you feel that you know them from years, even though you just met. That style of communication that I really enjoy. To look at somebody else and to know, well, I know you, even if I don't. Yeah, that chemistry is certainly super valuable. Yeah. Nice. So maybe if not, I want to be super respectful of your time. Maybe just leave us with your favorite communication tip that you've ever received that you felt was helpful to you or something that you dispense during your workshops and that you find could help other people? What's a really helpful tip in order to achieve more clear communication between people? Okay. I do have many great communication tips, but since you are Daphna, such a smiley person, I will say that a smile is the most powerful communication tool in the world. Actually, a smile is a curly line that's traded almost everything across culture. So my tip would be, to, uh, would be to smile when needed because it will help you to better communicate with different people around the globe. Fantastic. So that's now, and all of you keep on smiling. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Tell me something. Okay. So with regard to smiles, can I safely assume that a smile is uniformly acceptable as a business tool, not cynically, but if I naturally smile, I've actually been told by some people, you're too nice. Right. That some people think that it comes across as almost artificial and inauthentic, even though in my case, it's 100% authentic. I can't not. Right. But for some reason, some people, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, that some people think you're being artificial. I don't know you yet. You're not my friend yet. Why are you smiling at me? This is not a date. This is a business interaction. Are there some right. cultures in which it's unacceptable to be too friendly too quickly? So a smile, as I said, it's something that is familiar across cultures, but the amount of smiling, that's something else. So smiling too much, it's something that people will not understand as well in the beginning. Like let's say in Germany, you're not going to see people smiling to one another. But in the United States, people do it all the time. So you need to have, as I said, emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence and look around you. And it's good to smile, but of course, not all the time. So it's totally a question of research of the specific conditions. And that takes us right back to your website where we can learn more about it and your book and your workshops so that people understand that if they're preparing for a high stakes opportunity in a culture that they're not familiar with, that goes right back to Obama. We need to do our homework, mm -hmm. right? That's if we true. want to succeed, right. we need to do our homework. Absolutely. Same with standing in front of an audience, same with cross-cultural communication. Thank you so much, Osnat, for this wealth of great tips for all of us. I'm sure Thank that you, I learned you. a lot and I bet that our listeners did too. And I hope that you can go back to traveling to all kinds of beautiful and interesting places in the world in person when you want to and not just over Zoom very soon safely. Absolutely. I do miss it. So thank you very much, Daphna, for having me. It was my pleasure to having this great communication with you and all the best. I hope to see you soon face to face, right? I would love to meet you in person soon. It's on the agenda. Thank you. Thanks, Daphna. <laughs> Take care. Thank you, Daphna. All the best. Thanks for being here with us on Let's Clarify It. I hope you found it helpful. If there are specific topics you'd love to hear covered or you'd like help clarifying your own message, I'd be delighted to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me on letsclarify.it. 
In the meantime, be sure to take good care and clarify your messages to amplify your impact. <laughs>